Last week, uh, Len was talking about respect and humility in regards to the leaders God has placed in our lives and in our church. And the week before that, I spoke of uh, humility within um, uh, humility within suffering and humility within uh, the troubles that come from this earth. And this week, uh, verses uh, sorry, verses six to fourteen really capitalize on that, and they say we after learning about how to respect so many different aspects in the midst of suffering and trials, how do we respect truly our God and how do we view him during these trials? And so I'm going to start off by reading uh, verse 6. And it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And I wanted to stop here because, as Mark just said, there's an incredible amount of names for God. There's so much different ways that we can see different aspects and characteristics of God, and they all point to his power and his glory, how incredible he is. And what happens is the wording here actually says God's mighty hand. And that's actually a reoccurring phrase in the Bible. It's one used uh, throughout a whole bunch of the Old Testament and, of course, comes into the New Testament as well. And a few places we see that is in Exodus with Moses as he's talking to the burning bush. And God is telling him the plan to free his captive people. He says this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After this, he will let you go. In Exodus 6.1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. And there are many examples beyond just the Exodus story, even farther down the story of the Israelite people. In Deuteronomy, it says, I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Ezekiel 20, 34 continues, it says, I will bring the nations and gather you from the countries where have you have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. It continues on in Job, it says, you turn on me ruthlessly with your mighty hand, you attack me. But in Psalm 32, it says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin, and you did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And these are just a few examples of God's mighty hand. There are many more than these in the Bible. And 
that we, they just give us insight into God's power, right? He has the power to uproot nations and free others. He has the power to dismantle a wealthy man's life and rebuild it. He has the power and authority to make kings feel conviction and also give them forgiveness. He has the power to collect a people who have been scattered. He has the power and authority to speak the world and life into existence. God has supreme power and authority. Our God is fully sovereign. And so in verse 6, when it says, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, it's telling us to humble ourselves before the witnessed, and proven, overwhelmingly sovereign God. This is a power that even just passively demands respect. And in verse 6, it continues saying that he may lift you up in due time. God's mighty hand that can topple nations is the same hand that gives you salvation, that will lift you up to glory. The same hand that can be used for this intensity and discipline is the same hand used for deliverance. We have a little toddler named Abram. <laughs> and he's just over two, and he managed to get himself into quite, uh, quite the predicament sometimes. And, of course, sometimes it's his fault, and if it's rough enough, right, sometimes he ends up earning a spanking. And after, you know, many warnings. And one of the main reactions, though, after he earns a spanking, is to cry, but what he does is he turns around and he puts his hand up towards us. Because he knows that the hand that spanked him is also the hand that will lift him up and comfort him. That is so much like our God. The same hand that can be used for discipline, the same hand with all this power and might and authority is used for deliverance. And verse 7 builds on this. It says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. God, being perfectly sovereign, has the power to be able to take on our anxieties and worries, and he wants to because he cares for you. The question even arises, if I follow this awe-inspiringly sovereign God who cares so deeply for me, why, why do I need to worry? But in the midst of this encouragement, we're actually given a strong warning in verse 8. It says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. I've seen these words, be alert and of sober mind, perhaps translated as pay attention and wake up. Because here on earth, the devil is on the hunt. He's aggressively searching for someone to devour. And this word devour isn't just scratch or trip up. It means to completely consume. The enemy wants to harm believers in any way that he can, physically, mentally, so that he can spiritually consume and destroy their faith. So this warning is here to tell us that we worship a perfect and sovereign God, but that does not allow us to let our guard down or be lazy. We're still living on a fallen world full of conflict sown by the enemy's work. 
And verse 9 actually starts widening our view of this conflict. It says, resist him standing firm in faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Peter uses the wording resist him, which is used in other areas of the New Testament to allude to a larger spiritual battle that is taking place. And in this battle, we are not the only soldier. We are part of a family of believers. We're also dealing with this strife and fallout of this battle. To navigate this battle, the scripture says to stand firm in our faith. We can stand firm because of our relationship with our sovereign Lord. We suddenly have the bigger picture that our trials and sufferings we we endure is not just a part of some worldly troubles like a political debate or dispute of opinions, but are part of a cosmic war. And we are fighting battles that are part of this war. We need to pay attention and wake up to what is happening around us. This awareness helps us to identify and defend against the attacks on our faith. And we can stand firm in it through trusting in God's sovereignty. And in those verses, we just heard a lot about the enemy's hateful intents of this war being waged. But in verse 10, we're reminded of a key characteristic of God. Verse 10 reads, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. God's grace is incredible. God is so gracious to us that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. His mighty and sovereign hand opens to us. And if we take it, we will, he will carry us to salvation in his perfect timing. And those who take God's hand and accept his grace that's shown so clearly in the gospel message will be brought into eternal glory with him forever. Peter helps us see this perspective, saying that in reality, our suffering here on earth is short when compared to everlasting and eternal glory. Peter also tells us that God will empower us to endure the trials and suffering the enemy will attack us with so that we can stand firm in the truth of God and the present reality of his grace. And in verse 11, I'll say it again, he says, to him be the power forever and ever, amen. Not only does God empower and lead us through trials, we have the privilege of glorifying him by following him through it. Verse 12 to 14 is Peter's final greetings. There's a lot of, a lot more administrative like info here, but there's a few, few peaks a few key pieces of information in that that we need to take into account. In 1 Peter 5.12, it says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. 
In this verse, you can hear Peter's personal conviction as he echoes and reinforces the message of grace that's given, right? We talked about Peter being the one who said he didn't know God multiple times in God's most needed hour where he needed people around him, he left. And you can hear that in this. You can hear him saying, (laughs) encouraging you to testify, right? Don't be quiet. Testify that this is the true grace of God. In verse 14, where it ends, it says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And this kiss of love is is a practice based off of a custom from the original reader's time and culture. And all it means to us is that in this present time, we need to greet our family in Christ with the love and respect one should have for a sibling that is fighting on the same side you are in this cosmic war we are a part of. This final line simply says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. The end of this letter is Peter praying peace over all the believers then and they and when we find peace in the grace of God, the grace God has to send his son to die for us, extend his mighty hand to us, and in perfect timing take us to be with glory with him forever. We could say that when we trust In God's sovereignty, we find peace in God's grace. I worked at a Christian camp for some years, and through it I saw a lot of of the camp counselors actually come to be in relationship with God, and it was great. And during camp, some of them were the most energetic counselors I've seen. They taught the kids about God and emotionally told their testimonies and that their only hope was in God. But I heard and saw that after camp finished, quite a few of those camp counselors completely completely stepped away from their faith in God. Within a few months after excitedly teaching about their faith, some were in damaging relationships or indulging in addictions. And I know this because after my first year of camp, that's what I ended up doing, but I was lucky enough to be drawn back to camp the year after and come into a serious relationship with God, but I know of other fellows and people who did not. And after a couple years, I know of a fellow who after stepping away from God after just a few years ago, preaching of the love and care for God energetically, better than anyone I've seen, That same fellow, a couple years later, took his own life. So during summer, I started asking the staff, why do some counselors fall away from God after camp? And it usually came down to two main things. Those people ended up minimizing God's power. And because of that, they didn't trust in God's promises. God became small or inconsequential to them. For them, he was a God who could help kids at camp have a, a good week, but he couldn't help them through the troubles they had in their lives. Don't minimize God. Don't forget the entirety of the Old Testament of him continually trying to redeem his relationship with his people, trying to bring them back to him The same God that causes nations to rise and fall, who breathe the world into existence. Don't 
minimize him and in turn minimize his promises. As soon as we forget the first part, suddenly his promises of grace, his promises of salvation through him become small as well. They're inconsequential to us. They don't mean anything. Instead, deepen your trust in God, sovereignty, so that you can deeply understand the loving reality of God's grace. We need to come in humility before Christ, knowing how sovereign He is and the love that is waiting for us and He is giving to us and wants us to know need to remember the love of God. Let's pray together on that. God, we love you so much. And we see the importance of seeing how big and how incredible you truly are, Lord. We can see it throughout the Bible in our own lives, Lord. If we, see, if we look, we can see the incredible amount that you have done for us. We see that in reality you are in control. You have all authority and that you are a sovereign God. And you being all-powerful with that mighty hand that can discipline and cause nations to rise and fall, Lord, you extend that hand open to us to welcome you into the grace you have. Through, your through sending your son to die on a cross for us, we can so easily see that grace. And I pray that everyone here, whether they know you, God, or are trying to learn about you or aren't in relationship with you yet, I hope they can see some of the reality of your sovereignty that bit more, God. Lord, I pray as a church we can come in humility before you, knowing your power. And in that, Lord, can accept your grace so that we as a church will greet each other in heaven, Lord, when this is all past and done. And that none of us, I pray, fall away from your truth and the love that is so real in you, Lord. Thank you, God, for your grace. Let us find peace in it every day that we live. Amen.